The history. Tell me what you saw. The people. Hey, neighbor. The legends. I bring good news. The actions. If you build it, you will come. The vision and evolution of Southern California's desert cities. Boy, I got vision and the rest of the world wears bifocals. From mid-century. We're halfway there. To modern day. I'm building something. These are the stories of how the greater Palm Springs region has become America's playground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do this. iHub Radio presents Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence. Welcome back to the Coachella Valley Chronicles. I am Randy Florence. You know, last week after uh, my show, my son called me and I thought he was calling to congratulate me on the show because he sounded like he was in a really good mood. But he mentioned to me that I'd had a couple of dead air spaces on the call and I'd fumbled a couple of questions. And so he had developed a drinking game. And so he's encouraged all of his friends when they hear dead air on my show or fumbled questions, take a shot. I'd like to encourage all of you to listen responsibly. My guest today is Todd Goldberg, New York Times bestselling author who's written over a dozen books. He's received significant recognition for many of his works, including a Best American Essay Award, a Silver Pen Award from the Nevada Writers Hall of Fame, and five Nevada Press Association Awards for Excellence. In addition to his fiction, Todd has spent time as a book and cultural critic. His latest book, The Low Desert, is already receiving critical acclaim. It's a collection of crime stories, most of which took place in the Coachella Valley. I'm almost done, Todd. He's a professor of creative writing at the University of California, Riverside, where he founded and directs the low residency MFA in creative writing and writing for the performing arts. Previous to that, he served as an instructor of creative writing at UCLA, the Extension Writers Program, and was named Teacher of the Year in 2005. He's brother of New York Times bestselling novelist and TV writer producer Lee Goldberg, authors Linda Woods and Karen Danino, as well as the nephew of true crime author and novelist Burl Bearer, the son of journalist and author Jan Curran, and television broadcast journalist Alan Goberg. He grew up in Walnut Creek, California in Palm Springs and currently lives in Indio, California with his wife, Wendy Duran, also a writer. Todd, welcome to the show if you're still here. <laughs> I sound very impressive. Uh, it was I'm, really I'm impressive. very excited about who I am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Thank you. Hey, before I start, you know, I, I always think I can write and, and then I read a real writer. Is this your only superpower? <laughs> um, you know, I'm pretty good at video games. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I think I'm probably fairly entertaining at a cocktail party. Um, and I'm a terrible dancer. And being a terrible dancer is, in and of itself, a talent to entertain others. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, did you talk Goldberg? He cannot move. <laughs> Are you like, my e- God. Elaine in Seinfeld? Very similar. Very, very, <laughs> but we, you, we both have locked hips. It's just not an attractive look for either of do us. Do you like to dance is the key. Oh, yeah. I ah. mean, so here's the thing is, you know, during this time that we've been stuck in our home, there are often full dance interludes in the middle of my house. <laughs> we have, uh, we're one of the few homes in the desert with hardwood floors. <laughs> and I will put on my socks and slide all around to every song that I love while my poor wife, sits quietly watching me and thinking like, how did I, 
how did this become my life? <laughs> I got this half naked dancing boy in my house. Have you imitated like the Tom Cruise thing sliding through the front room on your underwear yet? Well, come on now. This that's a touchstone movie of my youth. You think I haven't done that hundreds of thousands of times while old time rock and roll plays in the background? Come on, Randy. It's gonna be awesome to have Wendy. (laughs) I can't wait to meet Wendy and get some of the video. This is gonna be so cool. I I have a very firm hand in not allowing any video outside the home. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't life so much easier because a lot of the stuff that we did growing up, which we really shouldn't have done, there weren't any cell phones or video yes, cameras or yeah. social media. I, I think about that often, particularly when I'm having conversations with my um, with my nephew, who has a, a similar sense of humor to mine and a, a similar lack of um, social boundaries that I had <laughs> discretion in my twenties. And I'm like, you got to get that crap off the internet, kid. <laughs> I'm so glad I don't have to go back and look at any of that stuff. Oh my God, me too, me too. It, it, it's bad enough having the memory. It's bad enough having to talk about it in therapy. I wouldn't want to see the video. <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, congratulations on the low desert. I, I, I honestly just couldn't put it down and I could spend the whole episode talking about it, but there's a lot more to discuss. We'll get into it a little bit later, but I, I'm just having such a blast with it. Although again, I do have to tell you that I've seen Harpo twice since. Um, and, and <laughs> I, I received I'm, a photo from you. I yes. saw. <laughs> he snuck up behind me and almost scared the hell out of me at the restaurant the other night. So, and you're to blame for that, Todd. So thank you. <laughs> well, thank you very much. You know, the the new book really is both a, a love letter and a warning for, <laughs> for the Coachella Valley. Um, you know, I've spent most of my life here and um, I've always written about the desert in some form or fashion since my since my very first book. Uh, there, there are parts of that book that take place right here in uh, in the desert. Um, but when I was working on this particular collection, I knew that I wanted to have some Easter eggs in there for the folks who mm. live in town. And um, and having a clown who shows up in bars, <laughs> look, there's only that only happens in one place, and that one place is right here. That's right. Well, I've told this story. I moved to the desert 10 years ago, and I went to work for a bank, and they put me in an office inside the bank branch. It was, I think it was my second day here in the desert. And all of a sudden, the front door opened and a fully clothed clown walked in. And I just assumed that's it. That this is how it ends for me with a clown <laughs> here in the bank branch. Um, and then everybody started walking over and patting him on the back and thanking him for being there. So my fear went away pretty quickly. Oh, my gosh. Uh, you mentioned the Coachella Valley. You know, some of my favorite writers who write parody, uh, guys like Dave Barry and Carl Hyacin and such, they really write in a way that would make the locals feel proud, uh, but make us outsiders feel like they kind of understood the culture. And I can say that living in the desert, I get a real sense of pride just reading about our valley in your books and your stories. Are you conscious of a desert culture in communicating that in your writing? Oh, for sure. You, you know, um, there's, there's something surreal about living in a place that is dedicated to other people's enjoyment. You know, that, that's an odd thing mm. to think about, that we live and work in a place that's dedicated to other people having a good time. Um, and even when I was a kid, you know, I worked in a bunch of the hotels when I was a kid as a, as a pool boy 
giving people suntan lotion and towels and, and you know, working for a series of grifters who were, <laughs> who were ripping people off at these local hotels, including myself. I worked for a guy called the Tan Man, for instance. <laughs> I, we never knew his full name. He was just the Tan Man. Um, and so there's that side of the culture, of course. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm hyper aware of the, the kind of underbelly that always exists in a resort town. But the fact of the matter, too, is that when I was a kid living here, my mom uh, was the society editor of the Desert Sun, mm -hmm. and she led this very glamorous life on a journalist's salary, um, <laughs> which meant, you know, she got all sorts of strange local perks that I suspect she did not reveal to the overlords at Gannett <laughs> that, you know, Saks Fifth Avenue was dressing her every year. You know, all these crazy things that, you know, certainly would not fly at, at this age. Um and so, you know, I, I saw that that celebrity side of it as well. But also that celebrity side has a strange darkness as well, because oftentimes, and this was, of course, in the 80s and the, the early 90s, I'm not speaking of, of today, it was a lot of folks that, that had washed out somewhere else mm -hmm. and had come here and were minor celebrities in Hollywood and major celebrities in Palm Springs. And there's a sadness to that. Um, but there's also a kind of glory, you know, that you can come to the desert and re reinvent yourself. And, you know, Sonny Bono is, is a, you know, is the perfect example of that, right? Um, so, yeah, there's there's certainly a, a, a culture that exists. And then there's the perception of this modernist haven and all of these things. But in truth, of course, that that's only part of the story. You know, when when the modernist explosion was happening in the Coachella Valley, um, that was the same time that at the very east end of the valley, there was Duroville, the poorest, worst place to live in all of America. It was, mm. you know, 25 minutes away from every billionaire in America having a, a wonderful time. So the dichotomy of the desert is something I have spent a lot of time thinking about and a lot of time writing about. That's interesting. I, I was thinking about something you just said, and it seems like there would be a large percentage of people back then who came here to be seen because they weren't being seen where they were anymore. Absolutely. And they absolutely. were mixing with a large group of people that were coming here not to be seen. For sure. And the other thing to keep in mind, and, and this is of particular interest to me, of course, is that the Coachella Valley was built on organized crime. <laughs> you know, the, the very, the, the, one of the main builders of the city, um, Ray Ryan, Mr. Palm Springs, who also developed you know, properties of the Salton Sea, was a Chicago outfit gangster who got blown up in his car in Evanston, Illinois in the 1980s. Um, so there's this strange mixture of old Hollywood, um, Chicago and New York gangsters, and then just families on vacation, and then Sonny Bono. <laughs> and Suzanne Summers. <laughs> That's right. Suzanne had an interesting experience in her house a couple of weeks ago that was on air for everybody to see if you caught that. No, I didn't. She was doing a Zoom call advertising her makeup collection or something, and some stranger just walked in the house off the <laughs> off the trail uh, in oh the middle gosh. of the show. So she was a little shocked at that time. Hey, we, uh, we've got just a couple of minutes here before the break, so I don't want to get into anything real deep, but I want to ask you a couple of things off my, my lightning round uh, okay. section here. Favorite book you wrote? Uh, Gangsterland. And how come? It was the culmination of um, my ambition and my talent finally meeting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I had that, it, it was like my 10th or 11th book or something like that. 
Um, but it was the book I was meant to write. It's the only book that I could have written and no one else could have written. And it set forth this next great phase of my career that, you know, I've spent the last about 10 years doing. Um, you know, at the very notion of a book about a Chicago hitman who hides out in Las Vegas as a rabbi, it's absurd. <laughs> and no one else could have written it. And I was the guy that did. And it's it's brought me great um Literal and metaphorical fame and fortune. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because as I mentioned to you a couple of days ago, I, I looked you up on www.fameranker.com and you're worth eight figures, my man. Uh, I, I, I can't wait to find out how much that gets me at Trader Joe's next time I'm there. <laughs> and it's particularly been a good couple of years because you were uh, you gained about $3 million in value over the last three years, so congratulations <laughs> on that. Well, you know, there's also a tech entrepreneur with my same name, so I suspect maybe they're, <laughs> they're looking at him. <laughs> well, wait, 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 who am I interviewing here? <laughs> You're not worth $21 million? Somewhere right now, Todd Goldberg, the tech entrepreneur, is being asked probing questions about Judaism and violence. <laughs> That's great. Well, we're going to be back in just a couple of moments here. And when we come back, Todd, before we get back to the desert, I'd like to get back to your uh, youth in the East Bay. Uh, you'll sure. all be back at the Coachella Valley Chronicles with my guest Todd Goldberg on iHub Radio. Let's just call it what it is. Coachella Valley Chronicles continues on iHub Radio. You are the story. Here's Randy Florence. Welcome back to the Chronicles with my guest, Todd Goldberg. Todd, you were born in 1971 in Berkeley. Is that right? That is correct. And how long did you stay in Berkeley and uh, the East Bay? Um, I lived there until I was, I guess, 14, until my freshman year of high school. And then you came straight down here to the desert. Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't leave home with the with the circus or the hell <laughs> you know, of I was, I was living with my with my family. Oh, got it. Okay. Uh, and my mom had gotten hired um, to be the society columnist for the for the desert sun. Was that a goal of hers to come to the desert, or was it the job that brought her here? Um, a little bit of. Both, you know, our families have had homes out here um, on both my mom's side and my dad's side since the 1950s, um, because you know, essentially, it was the only place that uh, Jews could come to play golf, <laughs> and um, that's, the, that's the truth, sadly. Um, but not, but not at all the clubs. Um, part of the rich anti-Semitic history of the desert. Interesting. Um, hmm. So we've been coming here our entire lives. My my mom had been bringing us down all the time to see our grandparents, all that sort of stuff. And at the time, uh, in the mid-1980s, she was working as a columnist at the Contra Costa Times and had previously done society work for the San Francisco Chronicle and the Oakland Tribune, 
all the essentially all of the Bay Area papers. Mm-hmm. But the the job of society editor was going away. And, you know, for the most part, it's gone away in all major American newspapers covering things like, you know, parties and philanthropies is not something that most newspapers spend a lot of time with. Uh, but the Desert Sun did and still does. You know, they've, they've had a, a long line of, of society editors that lasted for many, many years. So before my mom, it was Aileen Arthur. And then after my mom, it was Betty Francis. Um, and, you know, these, these are folks that held the job for, you know, decades at a time. You're, um, before you came down here uh, in the East Bay, um, tell me a little bit about your youth there growing up. What, what was a typical day for you like in the area? Um, gosh, well, let's see. I was 14, so I looked like uh, I played keyboards in The Cure. <laughs> so I had, I had terrible hair and I wore a lot of black clothing. And hung out in front of a gelato shop a lot. Um, you know, there were obviously parts that were good and parts that were that were quite bad. Um, you know, my my parents divorced when I was very young, and um, my mom and my dad were not, to be uh, perfectly clear, and I'm not speaking out of school because I've written so much about this, were not sane people. Um, they were not, generally speaking, very good people. And so my childhood was was fairly fraught in that regard. Um, I mean, and, and, you know, there's even just funny, weird things like my my dad, after he and my mom divorced, was dating the host of Romper Room. And I would <laughs> wait for, I would wait for the host of Romper Room to look in that mirror and say that she sees Todd and she <laughs> never saw Todd. Like that was a that was a very upsetting moment. That is. Um, but, you know, the other side, too, is that I was I was profoundly dyslexic. And so I didn't learn to read until I was about 10 or 11 years old. And so for a, a lot of the early part of my childhood, I, I, I thought that I was dumb. Hmm. And uh, I thought that I wouldn't amount to much because I was told I wouldn't amount to much. I was told from a very young age that I would never read or write. And you know that's the sort of thing that sticks with a person. That's um, the sort of thing that stays with you even when you are 50 years old and a New York Times bestselling author and a professor of creative writing. You're still that child that was sitting yes. in that office listening to that doctor tell your mother that you would never read or write above a fourth grade level, um, and so those you know those things lingered behind me like you know like old chains for a long time, and so in fact leaving the Bay Area was I think helpful to me in that regard because I got to leave behind the the people that remembered me as the kid in the special classes. And I could I could start, you know, becoming a different person when I got here. I don't know if I thought about those things intellectually at the time. I was only 14. Mm -hmm. But in looking back over my life, I think that's, you know, it's a, a pretty clear dividing line for me. You know, in, in the next segment, uh, I'm going to want to talk to you a little bit about becoming a crime writer. And as I'm thinking about this, <laughs> I wonder how much of your youth and your growing up and some of those feelings that you had ultimately led to the type of writing that you ultimately did. Oh, I don't know. I, you know, I, I think part of it is that I always have had an interest in someone on their worst day. Mm. You know, that, that that's something I, I care about. But also just, you know, my the sort of literature that I read when I was very young, my YA literature, you know, YA didn't exist in the 1980s, you know. <laughs> um, so the first books that I really started to read when I was very young were books that were easy to read. And those books were 
the golden age noir novels because you know those those noir novelists wrote simple easy prose and as i was learning to read and i you know once i was able to read i picked it up extraordinarily quickly um those books were you know weren't 500 pages long they were 200 pages long and i could read them quickly and i could devour them and you know so i think part of it is you know my special interest in in weird things and another part of it is a, a little bit of a learned behavior from what i read when i was young yeah thank you for sharing that we're going to get into that a little bit more in the next segment here on the coachella valley chronicles with my guest todd goldberg on ihub radio From the Gene Autry Trail to the Empire Polo Grounds. Have you seen it? Like desert sands through an hourglass. With great power comes great responsibility. These are the Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence on iHub Radio. Cool. Here's Randy. Welcome back. We're here with my guest Todd Goldberg. Todd, I'm always interested in finding out how uh, the mind of a bizarre overachiever develops itself. So I want to know how you got to where you are. Um, I read at the beginning of this uh, interview uh, a bunch of names that are all successful writers <laughs> who were in your family. How mm-hmm. many brothers and sisters did you have? I have uh, two sisters and one brother. Were you? Where did you rank in age? I am, was, and still remain the youngest. <laughs> and how did that impact you growing up? Oh, you know, the, I think the, the most important aspect of being the youngest of four children, all of whom are extraordinarily creative, is it taught me the value of having a loud voice. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I, I grew up with four sisters, and I used to say the biggest lesson I learned was to get to the bathroom first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, for, for us, the, the, the nice thing is um, – my brother Lee is nine years older than me. My sister Karen uh, is seven years older, and then my sister Linda is two years older than me. And so um, we have a, a large expanse of time between the four of us. But the four of us have all always been extraordinarily close and gotten along exceptionally well. We talk to each other. All four of us talk to each other every single day, um, and just having siblings that understand the the problems that you're having with the imaginary people that speak in your head. Like that's, that's a significant part of, of having a healthy creative life. I think. Did you actually have conversations with your siblings about those kind of things? Oh, for sure. You know, my, my brother and I talk about our books with one another all the time. Um, you know, Lee writes crime novels. So, you know, we, we have the same job and right now um, we had this only happens every couple of years. We have books out at the exact same time. And so, you know, we're, we're constantly on the phone saying, oh, my God, I got this crazy piece of fan mail or, 
you know, hey, if you want to bury a body in the desert, how long until the maggots get to it? Or, you know, you know, whatever the conversation <laughs> might be, Lee and I have it on a on a fairly regular basis. My sisters and, and I um, talk less about the writing and more about the, the life itself, I suspect. Mm. Uh, but my brother and I absolutely, you know, bang stuff off of each other on a, on a pretty regular basis. Growing up, was there... Was there anything traditional about your family life? Did you have family gatherings around the table where, with all of these creative writers? Um, well, somewhat. You know, uh, like I said, my mom was a journalist. And even back when we were all living together, and, and we only all lived together until I was nine, hmm. uh, because my brother is nine years older than me. So he went off to college when he was 18. Um, she often was not home at dinner. Um, so that was, that was, you know, I was a latchkey child, a term that doesn't really exist anymore. Um, but, you know, so we didn't have a lot of those things. But that's not to say we, we still didn't have them sometimes. But what I remember a lot was sitting around the table and having more esoteric conversations than I think most people would imagine a, a family having. Because we were all, even when we were very young, interested in really weird stuff. And my mom... <laughs> absolutely encouraged us to read a lot and watch TV and uh, and you talk about the things that we were interested in. Um, you know, for her faults, uh, her faults were personal ones. They were not creative ones. And she really was invested in us developing um, our minds. Hmm. Was there an alpha in the family? Um, well, yeah, but not not in the nuclear home. You know, my my grandfather, uh, Dave Bear, on my mom's side. Um, it's it's very funny. Just yesterday, we sold the last piece of real estate that he had owned in Walla Walla, Washington, oh, where the my. family had settled after they escaped from Russia in the early 1900s, through a series of deaths and bequeathments. My siblings and I owned a giant warehouse in Walla Walla, Washington, <laughs> and uh, and we sold it yesterday. And it, that's the end of of Dave Bear owning all of Walla Walla, Washington. But he was he was for sure the the guiding sort of emotional and um, philosophical force in our family. He had come to the United States when he was very young. Uh, he and his siblings had essentially escaped. Uh, Russia in bags of potatoes. Wow! And were hustled out of uh, across the Black Sea in bags of potatoes. He was in a bag with his infant brother who died, and so he held on to a lot of these memories. and And he made it very clear that the life that we had in America was one um, for us to cherish. You know, he he was an autodidact. He had never gone to school, but he was exceptionally well read. He was extraordinarily successful in business. So successful that 35 years after his death, I still own property in his name. Um, so he was for sure the the sort of guiding force for, for the family. Are you the type where there was anything emotional behind the disposition of that last property? Oh, of course. Come on now. There'll, there'll, <laughs> be, an, there'll be an essay, an award-winning essay somewhere, Randy. Come I was on, wondering you? about that. I can't even believe you asked that question. I, I'm, I'm still new at this. I'm getting better, I promise. <laughs> Would I recognize any of your mom or your dad in you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the narcissism, <laughs> the, um, the, uh, the feral good looks, uh, the sense of humor, uh, the voice. You know, I, I come by this voice naturally. You know, my dad was a, 
the TV newsman. Um, and so he often sounded a lot like this, Randy. Mm -hmm. He would put on that voice and <laughs> speak to you in a precise articulation of his emotions. Um, so all of those things. And I look, I, I look just like my like my father. And I also have a strange predilection for V-necks that he did as well. Um, but, you know, my, my mother and father, they changed the ions when they walked into a room. You knew when they were there. They were big personalities. And, um, and people gravitated toward them. I don't know if that made them good parents, but it made them good to be around socially. Yeah. Were you was it the type of family where there would be people at the house that might be recognized and the kids were encouraged to be in the house? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, my mom, you know, my mom made a career out of dating B-list celebrities and crime <laughs> bosses. So, you know, there was a time where she and Artie Shaw wow. dated for several years and he was um, he was no fan of children. I can tell you that. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, you know, that was that was the life that that we led. And even, you know, even living here in, in Palm Springs, when our first home that we lived in Palm Springs uh, was in the Mesa. And so we lived across the street from Herman Woke and just down the hill from Suzanne Summers, in fact, uh, to, to tie it all together. And, you know, people were always driving up and down that street going to Herman Woke's house. And there was one time there was a knock on the door and. We opened it up and Pierce Brosnan was standing in our front lawn and he's like, is this Herman's house? And my sister, this is, you know, when Remington Steele was on, my sister was like, what is happening? Why is Pierce Brosnan here? So that was not a direct reason that related to my mom. That was real estate connected. Uh, but yeah, you know, that it, that was that was the interesting part of, of my childhood is that, you know, my mom and Zsa, Zsa Gabor were really good friends. You know, th these are these are the strange intersections that happen when you live in Palm Springs. Yeah, I, I read Bruce Fessier's obituary after your mom passed, and obviously an incredibly accomplished woman. But what was it like? Was there any downside to being the son uh, of your mom when she was doing what she was doing in town? No, I, I ate for free wherever I went. <laughs> that, was, that was great. Um, the only downside, you know, aside from the things that I've mentioned already or in the prize winning essays, um, <laughs> you know, is that there was no escaping her friends. So four o'clock in the morning, I'm drunk at the Denny's at, uh, you know, in the north end of town. And there's some nightclub singer that's going to go report back to my mom that, oh, I saw your son at Denny's at 4 a.m. I <laughs> thought you said that he had a, you know, midnight curfew or whatever. She knew everybody, and and that meant that I, it was hard to to get away with things that I might normally get away from. Uh, so there was there was that, and you know, Palm Springs in the 1980s when I was a child here was a very small town. You know, mm -hmm. if you were going to drive from Palm Springs to La Quinta, you, you had to pack a lunch and <laughs> and hope for a porta potty. You know, <laughs> I love that. Are you still doing your uh, literary disco podcast, Randy? Yes. How dare you? We just celebrated our ninth birthday. We just recorded our 190th episode. 
Are you not listening to Literary Disco on a daily basis? The Washington Post named it one of the best literary podcasts on the planet, and you have the temerity to ask me? I can tear up my next card as I was going to describe (laughs) what the Washington Post said about it. I wanted to ask you something that I, I did read about it, though. I was looking through some of the reviews. Yes. And here were two reviews done on the same day two years ago. Oh, oh boy, now I'm concerned. A terrific trio, <laughs> Julia, Ryder, and Todd, are the perfect combination of funny, smart, self-aware, and playfully ridiculous. Even if they weren't talking about books, I'd still listen. <laughs> and then here's another one on, from the same day. Yuck, no. The kind of pompous, hypocritical book snobs who make middle America hate people who like books. Self-congratulatory without much actual insider depth. How, how do you... Yeah. That's about right. Does that accurately describe the podcast? <laughs> how do you deal with criticism, Todd? Oh gosh, you know you don't you don't put yourself out there into the public and expect everyone to love you. Um, if if everyone loved you, uh, someone would be preparing to take you down. The only person who has survived their entire careers of being taken down is Dolly Parton, mm. and uh, and I don't have I don't have the 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 talent of, of Dolly Parton. Um, Criticism is is part of making art. Um, I am a book critic, and it's my job as a book critic to, you know, in front of a large audience, both in print and and on the show, uh, to talk about the things that I like and that I don't like and the reasons why. And that's the essence of of what we do as artists. You you have to be thick skinned. Now, do I love to read a review that says you know Todd Goldberg's book is terrible or Todd Goldberg's you know, show is awful and he's the reason why. Well, no, but I also don't go searching for them. <laughs> you know, Twitter isn't the first thing in the morning, Todd. Well, it is, but oh. <laughs> uh, that's just to make sure we still have a democracy. Um, you know, the, the thing about the internet is it has democratized everything. And as an artist, if you want to find out the worst things about yourself, you can you can find them. Mm-hmm. There's someone talking about them somewhere on the internet. So I don't I don't go I don't go looking for them. I hope they're sprung on me often in interviews, but, <laughs> but I don't go searching. For yeah, them. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're getting ready to uh, go to a break here, but uh, lightning round. One book, one book you want to keep. What is it? Oh gosh. Empire Falls by Richard Russo, the signed copy I have right here on my shelf. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that, too. We're going to go to our break here. We'll be back on the Coachella Valley Chronicles. When we come back with Todd Goldberg, we're actually going to talk a little bit about the low desert. The who, the when, the why, and the where. 
This is Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence. The 411 on the events, the personalities, and the history that have built an oasis in the desert. Here's Randy. Welcome back. We are here with my guest, Todd Goldberg. Todd, if it's okay with you, I'd like to read a couple of sentences from one of the stories in the low desert. I will allow that. I, I'm, I'll be interested to hear how you're able to work around all the swear words and the violence, but this should be good. I, I'm skipping the swear words. I'm moving from one <laughs> sentence, skipping two, and then moving to another. <laughs> this is from your story, The Spare. If Dark Billy Cooper teen had to kill a guy, he preferred to do it up close with his bare hands. Push a button and boom, done. You kill a guy with your hands, you punch his teeth into his throat, you beat his eyeballs into the back of his head. You break his windpipe and watch him choke on his own blood. Man, that's yours. Is it safe to be around you when you write? <laughs> I'm a very nice person, Randy. <laughs> Where does that come from, Todd? Um, you know, I am fascinated by man's propensity for violence mm -hmm. and for the things that men will do. And when I say men, I mean men. Mm -hmm. um, you know, very rarely do do women do these things, thank God. Um, men shouldn't do them either. Um, so I'm, I'm fascinated by man's propensity for toward violence, and I'm interested in why it's entertaining. I'm interested in why we read those things and we want to keep reading. And so then it becomes a challenge for me to say that about this man and then make you, by the end of that story, care about him. Mm. You shouldn't. You shouldn't care about him. You should want nothing more than to never read about this person. And yet, here we are, two rational men talking about it because it's in a book that people are reading. Mm -hmm. So why... Why do we like this stuff? Why are we interested in violence? These are the questions that I have in my own mind, and these are the kinds of stories I write to explore those questions. I don't, I don't write what I know. I, I write what I'm befuddled by. Mm, that's interesting. Did, did all of this come out of those early years and watching the people that your mom was dating and hanging around and these these middle low-edge mobsters that you talked about no no not all of it uh, you know certainly there was some you know there's some lingering things about me and these guys but you know they were nice to me of course um, except for know, Artie Shaw except for Artie Shaw <laughs> he beat me with his clarinet um, <laughs> he did not beat me with his clarinet he, he also didn't like to hear too much about Glenn Miller I'll tell you that much um but you know no one no one was was hurting us so you know for sure some association was made by these people that that we knew but i'm i'm just as influenced by you know reading books or watching tv or movies or thinking about the things i want to do to people when they piss me <laughs> off you know um not everything has to come from somewhere else you know most of the time i just make stuff up that's interesting in in real life, I read in an interview, you talked about you saw someone bite a hole in their finger until it bled, and, and you were so surprised by it. You ended up using that in an important scene in Gangsterland. Yeah. How does that work? Do you have a, a, a list of things? You see people do things, and you write it down and think, I need to use that at some point? 
No, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not one of those people who keeps a, a really big notebook filled with stuff, but I have a very good memory, and I, I particularly have a good memory for the strange things that I've seen in the world. Hmm. Um, and I'm always watching and listening. The, one of the hardest parts about this time um, during the pandemic is that I, I haven't had my my fill of eavesdropping. <laughs> you know, I, there's nothing I like more than to go to Target and and to listen to people. There, so I live in in India, and there used to be a, a a super Target right down the street from me, and it was interesting because. I live in a big gated community on a golf course in a lake, but a mile away is one of the largest gang-infested areas of town. You know, the the Mexican mafias um, got uh, an adjunct gang <laughs> that live all right there. And there was one year that the FBI came and arrested 150 people in one night. But the thing is, the, the super target is right between the two neighborhoods where it was. And you'd go in there on a Friday night and there'd be a bunch of shock collars and you and they're all everyone's just there getting wool light and toothpaste and vitamins. And so you'd be in line and they don't they don't mess with this place because it's their target too. Right. Like they need to get their stuff. Um, and so you'd be in line and there'd be all these, you know, hard knocks and yourself and they'd be having the same problems that you're having. And it's just sort of, it was always interesting for me, like on a Friday night, just to go and listen to the hard knocks and the country club elite. <laughs> <laughs> in line at the same target talking about their kids and their problems or whatever <laughs> that's really cool i like that i'm gonna have to spend more time at target and see if it'll turn me into a writer <laughs> i suspect not hey, what's the story that was hardest for you to write in the low desert um there's a story called uh ragtown mm -hmm. that is towards the end of the book and there's a spoiler in it so i won't i won't talk too much about it but it was a story. It was the last story I wrote for the book, and it culminates the story of a character that I've written about a lot over the years, a, a, a cocktail waitress in Palm Springs mm -hmm. named Tanya. And so in this story, I, I end her story, and you find out a, a secret about her life. Mm -hmm. And I had avoided writing that chapter for many, many years because I didn't really know how it ended. And then finally, I, I had a conversation with my editor, and, and he was like, you like you got to do it now. The time, the time to do it is now. It's, it's happening in this book, and you you need to write the story of of your life. You need to write the story that people won't be able to talk about because it will contain a spoiler. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna mm. give it a shot. And I spent I spent two months on that story, writing and rewriting and figuring out how to how to make it work. And um, I just got the audio book the other day, and I just listened to the audio version of it. I, I was walking around the lake by my house listening to the audio version and found myself brought to tears by it. And I was like, I knew what was going to happen. Why am I being brought to tears by what this man is saying into my ears? Uh, but that one in particular was, was a very challenging story to do. Your book did a lot of things, uh, brought up a lot of emotions in me besides uh, confirming my fear of clowns. <clears throat> <laughs> I cannot get Tanya out of my mind. It it is. Was she in any previous books of yours? Um, I had written a short story or two short stories about her, Palm Springs, and then a story called Other Resort Cities. That was the title story of a previous collection of short stories of mine. Mm -hmm. So those, both Palm Springs and Other Resort Cities, are in my book, Other Resort Cities. And then when we were doing this book, um, I knew I wanted to bring that Tanya character back. 
And so I rewrote Palm Springs and I gave her the ending that I thought um, would break her heart. The best that I can say is I feel like I understand Tanya. Thank you for that. Thank you for joining me today, Todd. This has been fascinating. I had a thousand more questions. I hope we can do it again. I appreciate Love it. Love to. Thank you. Welcome, everybody, to the Coachella Valley Chronicles. Can't wait to see you next week or hear you next week. <laughs>